you for that. My title for us this morning is simply The Resurrection of the Son of God. We've talked about the crucifixion or the cross of the Son of God in our previous weeks. But this week, Easter Sunday, we have navigated our way through the Gospel of John to chapter 20. The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you haven't been with us here at FBCCR over the past few months, then you've missed the majority of the Gospel of John. And I'm sorry for that because it's been a wonderful learning experience for all of us. But don't worry, I have good news. I have a feeling that this morning is going to be like walking in on the end of a movie that grasps your attention and leaves you wanting to start the movie over from the beginning to catch the whole thing. I say that because this morning we're talking about the clincher of Christianity. The affirmation of our faith and the anchor of our hope and our convictions. Of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of this resurrection, must ha- must, much has been said, excuse me, but suffice it to say this morning that for us as Orthodox Bible-believing Christians, the resurrection isn't a point of negotiation. It is an absolute necessity. It's a primary ingredient to what makes Christianity Christianity. A couple of quotations I want to share with you from some of my favorite authors. I think they're going to come up here on the screen. Yes, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, get this, as a space-time occurrence in history. Why is that quotation important? That quotation is important because it acknowledges the fact that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead in a sort of metaphysical way, in a spiritual way. Jesus was raised by the Father, by the power of the Spirit, physically, in history. That's why he says space-time occurrence in history. John Stott says, the resurrection was God's decisive demonstration that Jesus had not died in vain. It's like the stamp of God's approval on the crucifixion of Christ was his resurrection. J.C. Ryle says, the whole of saving Christianity hinges on the two facts that Christ died for our sins and rose again. For our justification. D.A. Carson says, For John, that's the gospel of John, for John, as for all the early Christians, the resurrection of Jesus was the immutable fact upon which their faith was based. And their faith, in large part, depended on the testimony and transformed behavior of those who had actually seen Jesus resurrected. Church, friends and family, in history there have been a number of momentous occasions, but none of them have been so momentous. None of them have been so important as is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And so we find ourselves learning this morning the lesson of the resurrection this Easter from the Gospel of John and chapter 20. I have three simple points for us this morning. The first of which is this, the resurrection itself. This is found in verses 1 through 10, the resurrection itself. Now, if you look at your text with your eyes, you'll see that the first line says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Matthew's gospel simply says, when the morning came. But here in John's gospel, it isn't simply the morning. He says, the first day of the week, and it was still dark. A couple of things I want us to observe there. First of all, the first day of the week. This is what John says, and in so doing, he reveals to us the timing and the significance for us today. The first day of the week would have been Sunday. In fact, this event was so important to early Christians that their day of worship even changed from Saturday to Sunday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul says to the church at Corinth that when they come together for worship on the first day of the week, They should take a collection for those in need. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Luke writes this, quote, On the first day of the week, when we had gathered together to break bread, the apostles preached. Sounds like a church service, doesn't it? Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 is interesting as well. It says that Jesus gave to John the book of Revelation, quote, on the Lord's day, which is a term that is synonymous with the first day of the week, Sunday, a reference that became interchangeable. When we say the Lord's day, or here as it's described as the first day of the week, we're talking about Sunday. Now, we have friends who worship on Saturday, and technically, we should worship the Lord Jesus every single day. Amen? Jesus doesn't deserve one out of seven. Jesus deserves every moment of every day. We should give him our all. But to our brothers and sisters who are genuinely in Christ, but do not worship on Sunday and have a problem when we do. I don't know what else to tell you. If the Lord's day, the first day of the week, was good enough for the apostles, it's good enough for Joe. We worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, because we see a great shift in the day of worship as a result of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So we worship on Sundays because God raised our Lord on that day. But there are a couple of other things here that I want us to note in the text, too. First... I want you to note that the first witness to the resurrection was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Mary is someone who we've heard of before, but not too much. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, Mary is said to come from a town called Magdala. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdalene. 
It says there in Luke chapter 8 a quick description of this Mary. Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus had healed her miraculously during his ministry because she was possessed not by one or two or five demons, but by seven demons. And he had freed her of that demonic possession. Now, tradition has told us that Mary was a woman of the night, a prostitute. That's the traditional teaching that has been handed down to all of us through the years about Mary Magdalene. But that may or may not have been the case. The only description that we have of Mary Magdalene in the Bible at all, ever, is found in Luke chapter 8 when it says that she was possessed by seven demons and Jesus had freed her. She might have been a prostitute. She might not have been a prostitute. That's not relevant. Say amen if you want to hear what's relevant. Jesus can free you. It's not about what your sins were because Jesus can free you from your sins just as easily as he freed Mary of hers. Doesn't really matter whether I was a prostitute or not because Jesus doesn't save some sinners that place their faith in him. Jesus saves all sinners that place their faith in him. So if you feel discouraged because you, you didn't sin like that sinner, oh, Jesus saves all of us that place our faith in him. But I bring this to your attention because it's interesting. The first person to witness that our Lord had been raised by God was a woman. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it later when we jump down to verses, uh, the next section, verses 11 and following. But for now, the second thing that I want us to observe in verses 1 through 10 is that once the event had been realized, Mary went and told the disciples, Simon and John, he's referring to himself as the other disciple, those two guys, they run. And John, he's younger, so he's fit. He beats Peter there. But he's young, so he's nervous, so he stops. Peter doesn't stop. He keeps going straight into the tomb. And the tombs were not ginormous. They were holes in the, in, in the, in the side of the, the cave, so they weren't large holes. They were kind of smaller holes. So it says Peter stooped and went in, and he saw the linen there. He was shocked. Then, when John knew that it was okay for him to go inside... Then he went inside, and he makes another observation. Not only did we see the linen that Jesus wore there, we saw the face cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' face as well separately. Details matter. Then it says, as yet, in verse 9, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. If some people think that Christians held to the resurrection of Jesus Christ all along, I've got news for you. They didn't. Now, that doesn't mean that it was untrue. On the contrary, I might even suggest to you gently that it adds validity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it isn't a reverse-engineered myth. 
Jesus rose from the dead, and those who were his closest, most intimate followers had no belief in it whatsoever at all. John says, we did not appreciate what the scriptures said. In other words, what the Bible said about the resurrection of Jesus, we had failed to grasp when we saw that Jesus' body was gone. Listen, it's not true. Christians did not hold to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though our Lord did raise from the dead from the start. They were confused and they were confounded. And say amen if you're listening. They're human, aren't they? Sometimes you and I have the same thing happen in our own lives. Obviously, we're talking about the most important factor in all of Christianity, but as a sort of illustration, let me say this. How many of you have prayed to the Lord only to have him answer the prayer and leave you in disbelief? Is it true? I mean, I can't tell you how many times Dimey and I have stood at 2 o'clock in the morning at the bar in our kitchen and go, is God really doing this? Is God really taking me to First Baptist Color Ridge? Is God really doing this with our kids? Is God really giving us this opportunity? Is God really giving us the chance to mentor this married couple? Is their marriage really getting healed? Sometimes God does things and we look at it in disbelief. Amen? And so it was with the apostles. They had heard. They had seen. They had experienced. And yet, even still, when the Lord had been raised from the dead, they went, what happened? What happened to Jesus' body? Church, while the resurrection of Christ was prophesied and even foretold by Christ himself on three separate occasions, when Jesus was raised by God on the third day, initially his disciples did not appreciate what happened. But the story continues to develop, so let's not stall here in our first point. Let's go to our second point. The resurrection has occurred. Now, let's look at the appearances. This is verses 11 through 29, and we're going to break down this section into a couple different appearances. The first is with Mary, the second is with the disciples, and the third is with Thomas. So we've reached a very interesting point in the gospel accounts Namely, that there were witnesses to the resurrection. First, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now, we've talked about this already. Mary went to visit the tomb, as we all do. We have family members who are six feet underground or in the mausoleum, right? And we take flowers. We, we recognize that they're gone, and we miss them, and we love them, and, and that even though they're gone... We recognize the impact that they made on our lives. Mary's going to recognize Jesus, even though he's gone. Because that's the kind of impact that Jesus had on Mary. So this is on the heels of Mary finding the the tomb empty. The disciples have come. It says in verse 10 that the disciples left. So all of this has happened, and Mary... It's just left there. I'm thinking pretty confused, maybe anxious, 
stressed, wondering what, what have they done with Jesus? It says in verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This is, this is synonymous with what Matthew says as well. Matthew says it was two angels that came down and rolled the stone away, and then they sat on it. It's kind of an interesting detail. But in this case, she's looking in, and the angels are there. And they ask her, why are you crying? I don't know if their pitch went up like that. Maybe they said, why are you crying? I don't know how angels talk. I've never spoken to an angel. We, we have freedom here. you know. Maybe they sing all the time. I don't know. But they ask her, and I'm just, put, I'm just paraphrasing this. We say, woman, why art thou weeping? Right, the old English. Here in the ESV, woman, why are you weeping? I think the, I think the angels are going, Mary, why are you crying? Tell us why you're crying. To which she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus. Now, the angels are out of the picture now, right? She turns around, she sees Jesus, but she does not know that it's Jesus. Now, this is one of those incidences where scholars go, I wonder why she didn't know it was Jesus. It, honestly, if we just be practical and simple, what did John say? It's early in the morning. It's probably very hard to see. Maybe there's a mist. There's some distance between her and this man. This is a Jewish culture, so she's probably not looking at him in the eyes. She's, maybe she has her head down a little bit. She doesn't realize that it's Jesus. Jesus says the same thing the angels asked. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And she's thinking, well, he's the gardener or something. And she says, well, if you carried away my Lord, tell me where you've laid him so that I can take him back. And Jesus says one word to her. He says, Mary. I love this part. She knew Jesus so well. And Jesus had spent so much time with her that when he said her name, she knew it was him. What does it say to you and to me that Jesus has such a powerful effect on us with such a short sermon. He didn't have to go through this long, meandering thing. When he called her by her name, her heart and her mind were flooded with all of the memories and truths and experiences that she had had with Jesus. And she says, Rabbi, teacher. And then Jesus says, don't cling to me, which is another one of these lines where I think, I think people go, what does Jesus mean by that? I'll tell you what. I, I think he's like, don't cling to me yet. I have a project for you. I want you to go tell the others. I think that's all he's saying. I think she latched on to him, and, he, and she's saying to, or sorry, Jesus is saying to her, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to the Father yet. There's still work to be done. 
Go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to yours, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples. I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Listen, we can take this account at face value. Essentially, all it's saying is that Mary Magdalene was the first person to witness the resurrection in a time when women could not testify in a court of law. In a time when women had very little influence in public affairs, the first person to witness the most extraordinary event in history, let alone redemptive history, in God's pleasure and in God's plan and in God's wisdom, was a woman. What does this tell us? Half the church says, obviously God loves women more than men. (laughs) What it tells us is this. It tells us that God doesn't work things the way that we do. Think about it. Who in their right mind would make the first witness to the resurrection someone whose testimony doesn't even matter? Who in their right mind would make someone the first witness of the resurrection whose testimony isn't even allowed in a court of law? But God is demolishing cultural standards here, church. Because in God's eyes, a man is not worth more than a woman or a woman more than a man. In God's eyes... Men and women are equal. Now, in his design, there may be different roles or responsibilities for men and for women. But the fact that there is a difference between roles and responsibilities between men and women does not suggest that there is also a difference of value in the eyes of the Creator. The fact that Mary Magdalene, not only a woman, But a woman from whom seven demons were expelled was the first person to witness that our Lord was raised from the dead gives me hope. God loves sinners like us. So much so that the most important redemptive event in history has as its first witness a woman. Secondly, Jesus appears to the disciples. This is found in verses 19 and following. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, same day, the doors being locked because the disciples are afraid. They're in the house. The doors are locked because they're worried that, that, okay, so they killed Jesus. We saw it happen. It was horrific and awful. Then they buried Jesus. We saw it happen. We went to visit his tomb. Now the body's gone. We don't know what's happening. Lock all the doors. We're not going outside. They're hiding for their life. With the doors being locked, it's just Jesus came and stood there among them. He said, peace be with you. I I think the suggestion here is that Jesus is, is not worried about a locked door. Jesus. 
supernaturally, miraculously, Jesus appears in the house. When he said to them, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He breathes all of them. It's sort of a a physical demonstration of the fact that he's going to give to them the power of his spirit. Because just as Jesus was sent from heaven with the message of the gospel, so Christians are sent by Jesus to the world with the message of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, Jesus says, they are forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness, they are withheld. This doesn't mean that God does what we say he does. This means that as representatives of God with the gospel, when I stand up here and say, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be forgiven. God honors that. Not because I'm saying it, but because that's what God said. So we have to be careful that we don't say, well, if you forgive others your sins, they'll be forgiven, basically means that Peter was the first pope. The apostles were the first church in that sense. Well, yes and no. We have no record of any pope in the Bible. But we do have record of the authority of the church of Christ. And the authority of the church of Christ is the authority of the word of God. We don't make up the rules, but we declare them and we proclaim them. And in so much that we declare them and proclaim them, God honors it. Thirdly, Jesus appears to Thomas. Now, This is very interesting because it's popular and well-known, this text. Everybody knows that when Jesus, if you're familiar with your Bible, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. So when the disciples tell Thomas, Thomas, we saw Jesus, Thomas goes, great. I'll believe what you believe. When I put my hand on his scars and touch his wounds, when I do that, then I will believe. In other words, when I see it for myself. As a result of this, Thomas is often called Thomas the Doubter. Right? Thomas the Doubter. But I think there's a sense in which Thomas, who demands to see it for himself, is just doing what anyone would do. Even what we, thank you, Tom. (laughs) Even what we ourselves would do. We would ask for proof. I don't know if Thomas is a doubter. When I read this text, I'm like, good for Thomas. I think if somebody came to me and said, hey, I saw this guy, he was dead, but now he's raised. I'm like, when I see him, I'll believe like you. And I think that's what Thomas is doing. I think Thomas is asking for empirical evidence. When I see it, when I touch it, what does he say? I'll believe. And wouldn't you know, in that instant, in that moment, eight days later, The disciples again are together. Thomas is with him this time. Jesus appears again on the other side of a locked door. And he says directly to Thomas, 
Thomas, touch my scars. Do not disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. There's a lesson here, church. Even though there is reasonable scientific proof for the resurrection, the final step is always one of faith. There's nothing wrong with evidence. But you need to know that there will never be enough evidence to replace your faith. Let me say that again. There is no amount of evidence that will ever take the place of faith. Evidence and proof can firm up your faith. They can educate your faith. They can encourage your faith. To all of that we say yes and amen. God has called us to use our minds and not to be ignorant. And so there has to be a scientific appreciation for the reasonableness of the resurrection. But it comes to a point where it doesn't matter if you've been to the empty tomb, if you've seen it, if you've witnessed it, if you've done the research and spoken to numerous people as we see happen in the Gospels. It doesn't matter if you compile the evidence. At the end of the day, you still have to have faith. And so Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Before the last point, let me just say this, church. We believe in a faith that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To God's glory alone. And we require evidence. We require proof. We never shy away from the hard questions and the difficult historical nuances. We don't have answers for everything. But we've got a lot more answers than anybody else out there. I'm so comfortable, historically speaking, with the resurrection evidence that it's easy to have faith. But that's my faith. Christ is calling each and every one of us to that place. Not to say, when I see or when I have, then I will believe. But Jesus is, so to speak, saying, with all of this, you have a decision to make. With all of this, you have a decision to make. Will you believe or will you not if you are resolved not to believe, there is no amount of evidence that will ever lead you to that point of belief. Each and every one of us must do our own believing. And finally, we get to the purpose. Found in verses 30 and 31. Let me read it with you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Unlike the well-known and well-liked biographies of famous and influential people, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, come with an expectation. 
I've said this numerous times, and if you've been with me for any amount of time teaching-wise, then you know I love biographies. Jonathan Aiken's biography on John Newman. Wow, what a fantastic biography. If you're looking for a good biography, short chapters, you can read a couple a day, whatever, however you're reading paces, you'll love it. It's amazing. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. What an amazing life, what God did in his life. Biographies are so encouraging. How about Gilbert's Winston Churchill authoritative biography? I'm a Churchill fan. But never at the end of the biography of Aiken on John Newman or Gilbert's on Winston Churchill is there a little chapter that says, now that I've told you the facts and details of Winston Churchill's life, let me encourage you to place your faith in him. Listen, biographies are not gospels. Gospels are biographical, but they are so much more. What John is saying here is we have written the things that we have written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have, I love this, in the chapter where he has resurrected, so that you would have life. So that you would have life in his name. Listen, the Gospels expect us to place our faith in Jesus as a risen Savior and Lord. And why shouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? There's a few things that we've got to grapple with. Think about it. First of all, if the body was gone, and by all accounts the body was gone, why wasn't it ever reproduced? Producing the body would have squashed any growth of Christianity immediately, completely, and indefinitely. As soon as people started running around preaching Jesus as the risen, as the risen Savior, they could have walked across the temple court with Jesus Biden in a wheelbarrow, and we would be done. We'd be at the beach today. But they didn't, and they couldn't, because there was no body to be produced. Notice that they continued to fight against Christianity, which would have made no sense had they had the body in possession. Here's another thing to consider. Second, the tomb was guarded. Whatever happened to the Roman soldiers? We can't play down the fact that the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb were trained to protect that space with their lives. These guys are not like, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a low jab here on some of you guys that are younger. These are not millennials. (laughs) They're not standing outside this, this tomb on their phone. Checking TikTok. These guys were trained to guard with their life six square feet. There is not a negotiation here. And they're not Jewish guards or Christian guards. That's like Scientology. Right? 
Everything with Scientology, you got to believe it. It's coming from a Scientologist. Of course they say that. They're Scientologists. Listen, our faith happened in a historical context. These are not our guards. These are Rome's guards. We didn't train these guys. The Romans did. They had a job to do. Stand outside this tomb. They understood what that meant. See to it that no one disturbs this tomb. They did not. Because the angels descended. They left, and the gospels say that they were paid a sum of money. And they were told to circulate the story that the disciples had stolen the body. That's in Matthew's gospel. Why? I already told you in the first point. There was no body to produce. So they had to make up some story. Third, I want you to think about this. If we were for a moment to assume that the resurrection of Jesus was indeed a hoax, and after everything that he endured, he was buried, and somehow, some way, this was, in fact, a hoax, which I do not believe. But if we did believe that for a moment, then the disciples would have known that too. Right? If Jesus had not, in fact, been raised from the dead, then the disciples, the guys who were with him, and the guys who were apparently witnesses of that resurrection, if the resurrection didn't happen, they would have known that. And yet, what we see in the disciples is a radical transformation. At the end of John, they're hiding behind locked doors. In the beginning of Acts, they're in public, being threatened with death. And they're like, we can't help but preach. We can't help but preach because Jesus has been raised from the dead. If you got to put me in jail, put me in jail. If you got to kill me, kill me. Because they say, and I'm quoting Peter here, it is not right for us to obey men instead of God. We cannot help but to speak about the things, I love this, about the things that we have seen. Church, do you realize that all but one disciple died a martyr's death? All but one. It's a terrible thing to die the kind of death that these men died. It's even more unimaginable to think that they did it for something if it was a hoax that didn't actually happen. The only thing that makes sense is that it did happen. The Roman guards were scared off by a supernatural event and compromised by the leaders who were in power at the time and that the accounts are accurate. There were witnesses and everyone was changed. To be a Christian means to adhere to the fundamentals of Christianity, the biblical Christian faith. And the biblical Christian faith says that the resurrection is a necessity to saving faith. If you want to be saved by a risen Savior who has power over death, 
then you have to believe that he is indeed risen from the dead. Not spiritually or some sort of metaphysical whatever. No, physically, he's conquered death. The crucifixion is the icing on the cake, you see. It's the period at the end of the sentence of redemption. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. Amen? He said, it is finished. What is finished? God's plan of salvation. The work is done. It was the finale. So the apostle Paul, in one of his most popular letters, the book of Romans, he says this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you get that part? Then you will be saved. He doesn't say if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He says if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved because you can't be saved by a dead guy. You can only be saved by a living Savior.